0: Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm chapter 14, Psalm chapter 14. I want to begin our time tonight with really a similar line of thought to how Dr. Allen began his message this morning when he mentioned that At this point in time, maybe it would be fair to say that the church finds herself, oh, in a bit of crisis in light of what's going on in the world. I'll just add to that that, yes, we live in a tumultuous world. Experience tells us that. Our observations tell us that. It seems that each passing week, our existence here on earth, it brings forth new manifestations of man's evil, new manifestations of wickedness. Some evil being called good and other forms of, of evil being perpetrated, still recognized by the world as problematic, but increasing nonetheless. The most heinous forms of wickedness that the world recognizes, at least, are being reported maybe such as terror attacks. They're accompanied by hand-wringing, by the news anchors and the talking heads and those in our world who are supposed to dispense wisdom. Ask Why? Why does this happen? Why are these things occurring? Why, why do people do evil things? Why do men commit these treacherous acts against other men? They offer anemic responses, a lack of success, a lack of fulfilling relationships, a lack of education, the wrong type of nurturing, whatever other excuse can be come up with. And we're bombarded with such solutions to man's plight. As the world rages on, we, we get these so-called solutions. And while as God's people, I trust we are slow to adopt responses such as these, the fact remains that the ever-increasing pressure, the ever-increasing pressure from the tumultuous world around us can, can weigh on us. It can weigh on God's people. It can weigh on the faithful. You hear the never-ending chorus of evil, and you may say to the TV, as I found myself, saying, what in the world is going on? What is wrong with people? God has not left his children to figure this out on our own, and he hasn't left us to ask that question as if we don't know the answer. Our minds need to be constantly adjusted and retuned to the truth that we have in the scriptures. And God's word provides us with a worldview that includes wickedness. We have a worldview presented in the scriptures that includes and accounts for wickedness. It accounts for the events, the, the tumult in the world around us if you looked at the bulletin this morning and you said, wow, wow Psalm 14, I know that. I know those proof texts. This is the, this, that's the depravity passage. Why, why is Myra going to preach that? I, just, I want you to consider two areas of your theology tonight. In light of the world around us, in light of the wickedness that we find ourselves constantly surrounded by, I want you to consider two areas of your worldview your hemardiology and your eschatology. That is, your understanding of sin and your understanding of ultimate deliverance. How is your hamartiology, your doctrine of sin, how healthy is it, how robust is your understanding of the doctrine of sin as communicated in the Scriptures? And also I want you to consider how is your hope how enduring is your understanding of the doctrine of ultimate deliverance, your ultimate hope? Those are the two areas that we're going to focus on tonight as we spend our time in Psalm 14. As we prepare to read there, I just, just want to say that the Psalms are such a unique treasure in the canon of Scripture because in them we, we are shown how to think and how to feel as Christians As God's people, as those who love the Lord in the midst of a fallen world. We have a a theologically accurate voice that we can learn from. And then make the psalmists lament, the psalmist weeps, the psalmist's rejoicing, ours, our rejoicing, our lamenting, our weeping. Shows us how the faithful are to think about the things that are happening in the world around us about how to experience those things, about how to relate to God the right way in light of those things. I believe Psalm 14 is a passage that shows us how to think and feel about the wickedness that we find ourselves up against. It provides theological mooring. Theological mooring that keeps God's people from being tossed to and fro mentally and emotionally and spiritually as we experience the things going on around us. A mooring is something fixed. It's a fixed point to which something, typically a boat or a vessel, is secured to keep it from going astray. So figuratively speaking, theological moorings, they keep us secure. They keep us anchored in our walk of faith. They keep our minds, our hearts, our emotions stayed where they need to be fixed and firm in our faith. And I trust and hope that we will see theological moorings from Psalm 14 that will give us that fixed, secure position as the world rages around us. I want to make a couple comments on the structure of Psalm 14 because I want you to have a sense of it as we read. I I want you to to attempt to feel Psalm 14. It seems to be a contemplative lament. say, what do you mean by that? Well, the psalmist is, is, is observing a situation. He's assessing a situation with, with his theology and putting it into practice and then responding. There is a sober tone in this psalm. And for the majority of the psalm, the subject matter is sober. But it doesn't remain there, it doesn't stay in that area. Interestingly, it, it shifts. And there's a shift. From this sober contemplative lament of the world around the psalmist to an expression of the psalmist's heart, and it it comes out in the last verse in a hope-filled petition. And so it's not simply a cold theological assertion about man's depravity. It's a a lament psalm, but it turns into a hope-filled petition, And I think if we we get the sense of that, we we get the feel of that, it can become ours and show us how to rightly think and rightly feel. So as we read, allow the the sober tone to be in your mind, but sense the shift coming. And so we hit verse 5, and as we culminate in verse 7, follow along as I read Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God, they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion! When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. In these seven verses of this psalm, contemplative lament gives way to this hope-filled petition and provides us with two theological moorings that secure God's righteous people, God's people, those who love him and follow him in the midst of a tumultuous world. The first theological mooring that we have is a robust doctrine of sin, a robust homardiology. God's people need to think correctly about sin and wickedness. That requires a robust a robust doctrine of sin. And David begins his psalm by contemplating and asserting the extent of the wickedness that he saw in the world around him. He asserts this widespread corruption, and he does that by zeroing in on one particular class of human being: the fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, when we hear that terminology, we hear fool, we think of someone who's lacking common sense, the, the village idiot, somebody who's a few bricks short of a load. But in this text, it's more of a moral and ethical term than an intellectual one. It doesn't mean someone who's lacking an IQ department. It means somebody who's spiritually deficient, somebody who's lacking in morals and understanding. It's one who's bent toward evil. And the fundamental mark of a fool in David's mind is a denial of God. They say in their heart, God is not. And it's an expression of sinful autonomy. The fool desires to be on their own, their own man, apart from God. In the scripture, the heart, the heart is a very important thing. In TES, we had this drilled, drilled into us by one of our professors. It's more than the feelings of men and women. It is the seat of emotion, the seat of the will. It concerns the essence of one's being. Maybe an attempt at a weak illustration, the heart is to the man what the processor, hard drive, and memory are to a computer. It's everything. And to say something is in your heart is an idiom for thinking it, believing it, feeling it, feeling it. It's to live in accordance with it. And David says the characteristic thought of this fool is that there is no God. Our culture associates this kind of thinking with philosophical atheism, but that's not the point. It's not the the culture's label for those who, who have intellectual bigness. You know, they're so smart, so intelligent that they can deny God's existence. It's not about that. It's not about those who are too sophisticated and too accomplished to believe something trivial as deity. In the ancient Near East, such philosophical atheism was unknown. We see that throughout the Old Testament. There were many so-called gods during David's time. In fact, Israel was constantly turning after other gods and being, being warned and condemned for turning after the nations and their idols. The type of atheism that David is highlighting here that marks the fool and that marks all those who are apart from God is it's a practical atheism. It's an atheism that looks at God and shakes a defiant fist. It's not so much the the hand on chin contemplating God's existence or lack thereof. It's a denial that consists of suppressed truth, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness in in a pursuit of autonomy. The idea is that God will not get in the way. And a robust doctrine of sin understands that those apart from God, those apart from Christ, are characterized by foolish hearts that yearn yearn for a world without God. They yearn for a world without God's control, without testimony of God's character, without witness to God's doings. So David's assertion about mankind moves from that, their moral condition and the sinful desire for autonomy, and it starts to characterize what their lifestyle looks like. And what we see is that it's an utter lack of righteous ability. Fools are characterized by a yearning for spiritual autonomy separated from God, and their lives are characterized by an absolute lack of righteous ability. David says they're corrupt, They've committed abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The idea is that the overflow of a heart that suppresses truth and unrighteousness is corruption. Corruption, waywardness, apart from God. There's nothing, they have no ability to do God. The idea in using this term that is corrupt is a loaded term. It's It's the same term that's used when God looks down on the people before the flood in Genesis 6 says that the earth was deserving of annihilation. The idea is that those who are denying God, those who seek after this autonomy, all that they do is an offense to God. The stain of their rebellious heart marks everything. It marks their life. Their lives are characterized by this corruptness, this inability to be righteous. And David drives on the point, there is no one who does good. There is no one who does good. Now at first glance, this doesn't really stand up to the test of our observations, right? I mean, we would agree with it, but we've observed good deeds. We've observed good deeds by those who don't know Christ. But the language that David uses points to the fact he's not making a judgment about something that can be done, and act. He's talking about what characterizes the lost, what characterizes those who set against God. The idea is that characteristically, the course of life for those who are set against God, for those seeking after their own autonomy, is that they can't ultimately do anything that is ultimately good. He's not saying that he only observes men continually engaged in what we would call bad deeds. What he's saying is that he observes that all men are continually characterized by wickedness. They're not as bad as they could be, but they're thoroughly wicked The theological principle that we need to take away from David's words here is not that every human being is outwardly as wicked as they possibly could be, but that every human being is thoroughly wicked, thoroughly corrupt. The very best things, the very best things done by corrupt autonomy-seeking fools in this psalm are tainted by their wretchedness. There is no one who does good. The psalm moves from David's assessment into verse 2, and now he's going to bring the Lord into this assessment. If one was, was tempted to hear David's assertion and say, well, that must have been a specific context, it doesn't, it doesn't apply any longer. The, the perspective of the psalm transitions, and now you have a divine appraisal from Almighty God of the condition of mankind. He says in verse 2, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Immediately in verse 2, you sense that shift. The Lord is placed first. It's an emphasis. It's in an emphatic position. And we're moving from David's perspective, even though it's the perspective of the inspired psalmist, now to the Lord's perspective as almighty judge and almighty appraiser. David uses anthropomorphic language here to portray the Lord, seated in the heavens above, gazing down upon mankind. The idea that we're supposed to take from this is the inherent distance between God Almighty and frail humanity. He uses sons of man to emphasize human frailty and weakness, and that's the imagery we're intended to grasp, this incalculable distance between God and man. And he's looking down, and he's going to make an assessment. And this assessment carries with it the full weight of his character, the full weight of who he is. There can be no denying what's about to be assessed. There can be no refutation of what he says. I ask, well, what's he looking for? What's the intent? What is the purpose of this appraisal? He says, to see if there are any who understand. See if there are any who seek after God. The Lord is looking for the morally upright, for those who who are following him, for those who love him. This is a natural contrast to what David has just laid out in verse 1 to the fool. Those with understanding are the wise. In Old Testament terminology, wisdom literature, the Psalms, we have the wise contrasted with the fool, those who are marked by insight, prudence, understanding, a course of life properly related to God. The perfect contrast to the fool. That's who the Lord is looking for. They're characterized by a seeking after God. How do you know someone understands? Excuse me. How do you know that there is one out there with understanding? Their life is marked by a seeking after God. That's who the Lord's looking for. David's assessment was that human beings are god denying fools, and now the Lord's appraisal is discovering those who are actually seeking after the God who exists. See, the wise are in an active pursuit of God, while the, the fool in verse 1 is in an active pursuit away, an active pursuit of self, an active pursuit of absolute autonomy. The whole pattern of life is being contrasted by what David assessed and what the Lord says he's looking for. And it's illustrative to note that this language of the Lord appraising This language recalls the Lord's past visitations that we see in Genesis when he characterizes himself or figuratively speaks and says that he's looking down upon the sons of men to make an evaluation, to make a determinative judgment. Think of Genesis six, we mentioned earlier, when God looked down upon the evil and corruption that was on the earth. Or his observation of Babel before judging those who, um, who had arrayed themselves in rebellion against him. Or his visit to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the imagery that David is conjuring up, a visitation of the Lord to see what the sons of men are doing. Not because God didn't know already. It's illustrative. It's to make it vivid for us. God is going to visit the earth figuratively to see what is going on and to see what he may see down here, to see who he may find. It's interesting, in all those texts that we looked at, God is making a visitation upon those who live as if God will never, ever make any visitation, as if God has no idea what's going on. The idea here is God sees, he knows, he knows the wickedness that is on the earth. He knows exactly what is going on in the world around us. So as the psalmist contemplates and laments the world around him, his words here harken back to the Lord God's judgment and his visitations of judgment on mankind. And he's emphasizing this to set up the indictment that's going to come from the Lord's appraisal in verse 3. God's looking for any who understand, any who seek after God in verse 3. They've all turned aside. Together together. They have become corrupt. Universally, the Lord says the human race is confirmed to have turned away, to have turned away from the Lord. David asserted it. He asserted the universal desire for autonomy, and now the Lord says it is, so I confirm that. They've all turned aside. The pull on all men from within their hearts is in the opposite direction of God. God. All men and women left to themselves, head away from the Lord. They head headlong toward evil. It says in addition to turning aside, they're together, collectively, mankind is corrupt. The, The terminology is used elsewhere to describe milk as it spoils, as it turns sour. It describes here the sure outcome for all those that the Lord is saying have turned aside. They will spoil spiritually corrupting spoiling this is the irrefutable assessment of god that's the intent here in the psalm from david he says the irrefutable appraisal of almighty god is that men and women universally turn aside and that they unequivocally spoil they're corrupt we hear these words and maybe not in here but we might ask is it really that bad all mankind, all mankind, is it really this bad? Is everyone turned aside? Is everyone, will everyone unequivocally spoil? And in response, really to drive the nail into the coffin, the Lord's appraisal, it, it concludes with, with a clear and devastating indictment. Again, the repetition, there is no one who does good. And then to add for force, not even one. Then, verse 3 repeats what David had said earlier, and it stitches these things together. It's for emphasis, and it shows us there's, that that's the important takeaway from this assessment of the condition of mankind. There is none who does good, not even one. Wickedness is universal in its breadth, according to the psalmist, according to the Lord's appraisal. Not even one is good. And it's total in its depth. It's universal in its breadth and it's total in its depth. All men and women are thoroughly corrupt. No part of their heart goes unstained by this corruption. And that's the truth that's picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, where he uses this psalm to support the the argument that he's demonstrating the total depravity of mankind and demonstrating the universal need for righteousness. we pause here after considering the psalmist's assertion, his lament, and almighty God's appraisal and ask, does your worldview, does your worldview include this view of mankind? You might be thinking, I I came to church tonight and all I'm doing is hearing this, this preacher talk about the fact that man is sinful, man is utterly lost that man is utterly corrupt and opposed to God. And so far, that's true. And yes, that's all we've said so far in these verses. But it's important. This anchors our thinking in the world. This makes sense of the world around us. Do you look at the chaos that goes around, all around? Do you look at the reports? Even those things that, that shock our senses, terrorist attacks, multitudes of people being killed, murdered, do you look at that and have a theologically informed response? We don't have to say why. I think there are t- at least two things, two things, there, there are probably many more, but at least two things that having this right understanding, a robust doctrine of sin allows us to, to have when our minds are anchored there, when our, our theology moors us to this truth, it should humble us first. Understanding this doctrine of sin, understanding the Scripture's portrayal of man's lost condition should humble us first. It humble us because we understand, as Aaron even started the service tonight, that apart from the grace of God, this is us. This is you. These first three verses describe your heart apart from Christ. Describe my heart apart from Christ. Being reminded of what God says about sin, about man's condition should humble us. All who are saved were here. And all who are out there who are not saved are here right now. Should humble us when we understand the doctrine of sin as portrayed in the scriptures. Should stir us to compassion for those who are lost. Another thing it does for us is it clarifies the world's problem for us, and it simplifies it. Sinful man's desire to utterly cast off any semblance of God and the the great lengths to which men and women go after to assert their autonomy should not surprise us. If we understand rightly what God says about man's heart we have a robust doctrine of sin it should not surprise us the lengths that men and women will go in their evil and we have our mind rightly tuned to that when we're not surprised by it when we're not joining the chorus saying I don't know why I don't know why this happens I can't make sense of this we can point to the right solution it is that simple right We rightly understand man's condition. We can point to the right solution. If the problem is sin, and it is, then the solution is Jesus. Having a robust doctrine of sin allows us to kind of clear out all the nonsense, trying to make sense of what's going on and boil it down to one simple answer. Man is sinful and utterly lost and needs Jesus Christ. It's not to lead to a fatalistic view, a shoulder shrug, but it is that simple. A robust doctrine of sin helps more us. It helps more our emotions. It helps more our thinking. It helps more our spiritual vitality, even inform our obedience as we live and breathe as servants of Christ in this wicked world. Now, in verse 4, the psalm shifts. This is where we start to get a little bit of the shift, and it moves from this contemplation in general to a more specific focus. The psalmist is going to show us here the futility of wickedness. In the first three verses, we have the extents of wickedness. Now he's going to dial it in a little bit to his own context, and he's going to show us the futility of wickedness. Verse 4, do all workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. The first line of verse four is a rhetorical question and it's presented, it's it's to highlight the the stubborn, sin-laden ignorance that characterizes those who are oppressing God's people. It's just similar to a question we've probably asked. It's it's the idea, do, do men and women running hard after evil not understand the futility of their path? That's kind of the idea. Do they just, do they not know what's going to happen? What the ultimate end of this path is? That's the sense of the question. The other two lines in verse 4 actually identify those people, the workers of wickedness. He's not asking, do all workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people? There's a break. It's a question, a rhetorical question, and then he, then then he characterizes those workers of wickedness as those who eat up my people as they eat bread. And do not call upon the Lord. This is the picture of the wicked in David's time oppressing God's people. Oppressing the people of God's love, God's covenant people. And the wicked who essentially devoured the Lord's people as habitually as they had their daily meal. That's the understanding. Doing harm to the righteous is as casual as eating bread. As blase as it was to have their daily meal, they afflicted the righteous. They hate God. And therefore, they're opposed to God's people. They're opposed to God's people, not neutral. They're opposed. David further describes these people as those who do not call upon the Lord. This isn't simply an an indictment on those as if they don't pray. It's not that they just don't pray. It's that their lifestyle is characteristic, characteristically described as those who, they have no interest in God. It picks up that idea of autonomy again. Again, parallel with the fool. They're the antithesis of the wise who the Lord was looking for that seek after him. Those who understand here, these people, these workers of wickedness who eat up the Lord's people, who oppress the righteous, they don't call upon the Lord. David's painting a picture Again, now of the righteous people of God being afflicted by the wicked, and the wicked as those who have no allegiance to God whatsoever. They're, and they're absolutely set against the people of promise. And this question is going it begins and it points to the ex, of, of exposing the futility of wickedness that's going to come in verses five and six. So he asks the question do they not know what's coming? And then verse 5 begins to paint a picture, begins to look forward, begins to look away from what's going on around, to reflect on that day of hope that lies ahead. And note, as we read verses 5 and 6, note where all the hope is placed. He's going to make it very clear in verse 7, but in verses 5 and 6, note where is hope? Where's the positive? Where is that focus? Verse 5, there they are. Who's they? Who's they? the the workers of wickedness, those who are oppressing God's people in their autonomy. There they are in great dread. Why? For God is with the righteous generation. What they don't understand is that those who they oppress are under the protection of Almighty God. And David looks forward to that day when they will tremble at God's wrath. He looks forward to the day when those who are opposing God, who are eating up God's people as casually as they eat bread, will stand, knees trembling, as Almighty God is revealed and as His wrath is poured out in the day of judgment. The question in verse 4 indicates, look, they don't expect to be judged That's not at the forefront of their minds. When we see the wicked going on around us, the wickedness going on around us, what they're pursuing after, and it just keeps escalating and escalating. They're not doing that thinking, I'm going to be judged for this. There's a day coming. That's the question of verse 4. They don't understand. And now David looks forward, but there they are in great dread. It's because God is with his people, wickedness is futile. The wickedness going on around us is futile ultimately because God stands with his people and he's opposed to those who would harm his people. Verse six portrays the ignorant ambitions of the wicked. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted. That's their desire. They would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, those, the Lord's people who are afflicted The righteous community, the covenant people of God, they would put them to shame. But again, where's his hope? But the Lord is his refuge. And again, bringing this under that initial rhetorical question in verse 4, we see that the wicked, they desire to assail the righteous even though the Lord is their refuge. Again, that question, do they not understand the futility of what they're doing? That's what David is drawing out here the Lord is the security of those who are his that's where his focus is he has turned himself now in these verses away from an assessment of the wickedness around and now toward the God Almighty God God who is sovereign God who is powerful who has made promises to his people and who can fulfill those promises and that's where David's focus is as he questions what the wicked are doing, and ultimately makes clear that their wickedness is futile. It leads to a dead end. It leads to judgment because the Lord is with his people. The Lord stands with the righteous generation. There's a day of reckoning coming for those who are opposed to God. And again, we must recognize that we are in the those first three verses, and that we deserve that reckoning apart from Christ. And we're to hold in one hand compassion and mercy for the lost. But it is appropriate, I think, especially when we read the Psalms, to hold in the other hand an understanding that those who are perpetrating wickedness will be judged. We have that in both hands, that tension, compassion for those who need to be saved, but also an understanding that we're going to be delivered that we will one day be rescued from this tumultuous world. That God stands with his people. That he stands with the righteous. That wickedness, that path of wickedness, is futile. But wicked do not know they're coming to mice, they don't know that their path is futile. And with that reckoning in mind now, the psalmist recounts the Lord's faithfulness to his people, and he's begun a shift, and now in verse 7, he bursts forth in this hope-filled prayer. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, and Israel will be glad. Our first theological mooring was a robust doctrine of sin, a, a robust hamartiology. And the second theological mooring is a resilient hope, a resilient hope or a resilient desire for deliverance. The psalm, after asserting man's condition, the bleak condition, the the oppression of God's people and the coming wrath that awaits those who ultimately seek after autonomy from God, the psalmist now turns his attention ultimately to the future and he expresses his faith-filled hope for deliverance. So against that backdrop, against that wickedness that had been assessed in the prior lines, now you have this faith-filled yearning. That's the idea. Again, remember, these psalms aren't cold and calculating. this isn't a statement. Man is utterly depraved. God one day will deliver. There's emotion there. Man is lost. Wickedness is great. The extents are great. It's It's futile. They're going to be judged. And then he turns his attention and he says, I desire deliverance. I desire the day when the Lord will return and he will restore the fortune of his people. We will no longer be in this tumultuous world. The reason we note about that petition against this backdrop, particularly in Psalm 14, is the absolute dependence of the psalmist on God's sovereignty. Who's he crying out to? He knows. The the only one who can deliver, the only one who can ultimately rescue his people. His attention is shifted completely from the oppressiveness, from the wickedness around him, and now to the one who's promised and able to fulfill his promises. We ask, where is our focus when we're observing and living in and being afflicted by even and oppressed by even perhaps the tumultuous world around us? Where, ultimately, is our focus? Where is your focus? Is it on wins and losses in the world's arena? That is a losing game. There may be small victories, but that is a losing game. You turn our focus away from that and toward the one who's able to carry out what he's promised, toward Almighty God, toward Sovereign God, who's able to deliver David here has faith, utter faith. This is a faith-filled prayer, a faith-filled petition, and his faith is in God. And he uses rich Old Testament terminology, the salvation of Israel. It, it denotes more, it's, it's not simply what we think of, it's, it's not just spiritual salvation. It's deliverance, physical deliverance, the, res, the rescue of God's people from the oppression of this wickedness that's around him. But it's more than that. It's more than physical deliverance. That's what makes it so rich. When when God's people were delivered from wickedness, they longed to be delivered from wickedness. It wasn't simply an escape from harm's way. It's a a deliverance out of that and to God, a deliverance to worship, a deliverance to be God's people, to fulfill their intended purpose, a delivered Israel in this psalm, the salvation of Israel would bring a worshiping, God-glorifying Israel. That's the idea. Yes, asked that the salvation would come out of Zion. It's interesting that it shows up in this psalm. Sometimes we try to place psalms, right? We try to place them with the history that we have unfolded in the New Testament. What experience was, was this in David's life, et cetera? This throws a curveball there because we don't see Zion referred to until later in the historical accounts of David's reign but here clearly he says salvation out of Zion Zion is the place of God's presence the place of God's blessing the place that denotes God's strength and glory so David's looking to the future when the deliverance when that salvation would, would be secured when God's active presence on behalf of his people would bring deliverance and blessing and when now praise would flow from the lips of those who are rescued. Verse seven includes a statement about when this would happen. The NAS says, "When the Lord restores his captive people." The ESV says, "When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people." And there's debate about the meaning of the text. Uh, <laughs> "Captive people" has made some take this as some sort of like post-exilic psalm. It wasn't written by David. It was late, etc. The Maybe a better understanding is the fortunes of his people. I believe this is an early psalm. I believe it was written by David. He's asking for his people to be restored in the midst of oppression, out of the wickedness that's going on around him. And the end of the verse looks forward to that day when their fortunes would be restored. He says, "Jacob will rejoice." Israel will be glad. Just with us having recently gone through Romans 11, what a day that will be, right? We understand when God's chosen people, Israel, join the Gentiles in proclaiming glory, ascribing glory to Jesus Christ. The Psalmist hope in the midst of this wicked world, in the midst of his tumultuous world, is the promised restoration of God's people. And in the immediate application here for the psalmist, he was asking for deliverance for his people, for Israel. We know that it's certain. Look, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, it's going to happen and there's going to be great joy. And that's what he looked forward to in faith. And this was penned before the first coming of the Messiah. And we have the benefit now of looking back. We see the first stage in this deliverance. We rejoice that a pardon for sin has already been ultimately secured. It's a down payment on future deliverance has been made for all who would believe in Christ. So we look back with a slightly different perspective than the psalmist, but it's the same hope, ultimate deliverance, ultimate rescue, ultimate removal from a wicked world marred by sin, marred by depravity, to rejoicing for all eternity with our Savior to ascribe glory to the Lord Jesus and to God the Father for all eternity. And that's where our hope is to be. A resilient hope looks forward to the day when we will be removed from this earth and with Jesus Christ. In a tumultuous world, that has to be a mooring point for us. It absolutely has to be. Faith-filled desire that the Lord would bring about what he has promised. Ultimate, final deliverance. This morning we sing a lyric, I believe it's by the Gettys. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure and Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. We look forward to that day. To understand with a robust doctrine of sin what makes sense of the evil that's around us. And it secures us there. We don't have to ask why. We don't have to ask what's going on. We don't, we know. We know men need to be saved. We understand that all the various manifestations of wickedness are all a a heart's longing for autonomy. And we understand the solution. Then also we're moored with a resilient hope. We've got to have an eschatological view a view of what awaits us as God's people in the future to cling to by faith as we're here, striving to obey, striving after our Lord, walking on this earth, carrying out the things that he's called us to do. I love that these verses were not written again by a a robot-like author, void of life in a fallen world, void of a heartbeat of faith. David had frail blood coursing through his veins like we do. We have an expression of his faith in this psalm, and he accurately assesses the condition of man, and he faithfully exhibits a God-trusting hope. Every, every report on the news is an opportunity for you to test your theology. And is your theology, you have an understanding from God's word that's keeping you moored in the midst of the tumult that rages around us? Do you view the wickedness that we're confronted with every day, on large scale and small scale? Do you view that with biblical lenses so you understand the problem and understand the solution? Christians are to be the voice of reason. We're to be the voice of reason. I don't mean in some sort of apologetical sense We're going to reason somebody into the kingdom. I mean the voice of reason, the voice of truth that makes sense of the world around us. Mere external measures can never rid man of sin, ever. The solution is Christ, and that truth has to undergird our worldview. And finally, when you find yourself struggling, struggling with everything that's occurring around us, concern for your family concern for yourself where do you place your hope where do your mind and heart go when you're yearning for relief I want to nuance that do you yearn simply for an escape simply from a reprieve or do you yearn for deliverance from the wickedness but to to an eternity with God to a life of worship to a life doing what we were created to do, ascribing glory to our Lord Jesus and to God the Father. Please pray with me.